Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. to catch up on your reading through the Bible. I hope you're caught up. We're going to back, we're going to finish. We started last September reading through the Bible and preaching on different passages through each book. Today we're going to look at Titus and Philemon. You're going to read those two books this week and trust me folks, it won't take you long. Two of the shortest books in the New Testament. Titus is part of the pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul wrote to these guys who were pastoring, trying to help them establish church order and know what to do. We don't know much about Titus. He's mentioned several times in the scripture. We know that he was a Gentile, a Greek, and Paul calls him his true child according to common faith. Paul left Titus in Crete, and Crete was an island that had a lot of sin and paganism. In fact, if you were to look at chapter 1, verse 12, it says, One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, how would you like to be described that way? Your, your island, and it was an island off of... Uh, of Greece, but Paul left Titus there, and we're going to look in a moment in chapter 2. Philemon is a personal letter. It's not one of the pastoral epistles, but it's a personal letter. Paul knew Philemon, who lived in Colossae, and the church was probably meeting in Philemon's house. Philemon had a, a runaway slave, Onesimus, and, and came across Paul. And Paul led him to Christ. Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter, asking him to forgive Onesimus. And it's a letter of forgiveness and restoration and a very, very personal letter, but there's a lot of good application and truth in that. But today I want us to look at Titus in chapter 2 in verse 11. Now, I've got several things to tell you before you're going to write down the first point. So relax a minute, okay? I haven't forgotten. You're going to get through it. But I want you to know this could very well be one of the most important messages you've ever heard. One of the sweetest words in the Bible, if not the sweetest word in the Bible next to Jesus is used 156 times in the Bible, in the New Testament. And yet, Jesus never used this word. Now, you may think that's strange, but the reason that Jesus never used the word was because he didn't have to. He was the walking definition of that word. He never spoke this word, but it was seen in his life. And the word you've been singing about all morning is called grace. I think if God had a favorite word, it would be grace. Peter even described God as the God of all grace in 1 Peter 
J.I. Packer, who was a well-respected British theologian and author, said this, and I quote him, in the New Testament, grace is a word of central importance, the key word, in fact, of Christianity. The thought of grace is the key that unlocks the New Testament, and it is the only key that does so. However well we may know the New Testament, we cannot get inside its meaning until we know something of what grace is. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in the church, you've heard this all your life, and yet it's still a concept that's hard for us to understand. In theological terms, there are two types of grace. There's common grace, and there's saving grace. Common grace is the favor that God gives to everybody. The sun shines on everybody. It rains on everyone. There's air to breathe. There's food. There's shelter. There's general help. Common grace. Everybody experiences common grace. But salvation, saving grace, only comes to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and the salvation that God has given us through him. The classic definition we learned, unmerited favor, God's unmerited favor, which means that God showered us with his blessings on those who did not in any way deserve it or earn it. But God's saving grace is polluted two ways. First, it runs counter to the way that the world operates. Here's why it's so hard for us to grab it. We've been taught all our life that if you do well in school, you'll get good grades and you, and you win awards. If you do well in sports, you're on the team and you win applause. If you get into college, the merit system continues to reward excellence. It carries over into the business world. Exceptional performance earns promotions. And, and raises, sloppy performance gets you fired. Even in the spiritual realm, it's been polluted. Except for biblical Christianity, all the other religions work on the merit system. Even in the, some of the major branches of what people call Christianity, the Roman Catholic Church, for example, and the Orthodox Church, they teach a merit salvation where you must add works to what Christ did on the cross to get you to heaven. Some of them teach you die and you go to purgatory and then you suffer for a while and eventually you have enough of your sins purged away that you get enough merit and credit to go on into heaven. You ask anybody on the street, what do you think it takes to get a person into heaven? And more times than not, they're going to say, you've got to live a good life. So you see, the belief, even that belief was at the heart of the Pharisees and the legalism of Jesus' day. You had to do this and do this and do this and do this to get to heaven. God's grace also gets distorted from another side. Not the merit system, but the other side would be that, well, since I'm under grace, I can do anything I want. And, and people will say, it doesn't really matter how you live. It doesn't matter what sin you're involved in. You're under grace, and so you can live like you want, and yet we're going to see today that that's not true either. So now let's look at the text. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 
It corrects both of these misconceptions. And I hope you get a good dose of grace and grasped it today because it will change the way you live. It will. Some of you came today or some of you are watching online today because you're trying to get extra credit. And you think if I come at 8 o'clock, I get double credit. (laughs) I know you didn't come for that reason. You came because you love Jesus and you love his people. And when you love Jesus, you love his people. And you want a fellowship with believers, and we're told to do that. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and denying worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, or King James says his, a peculiar people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. This is one of the most beautiful passages in the Word of God. Because you see several things about grace. First of all, you'll notice grace's manifestation. But this happened in the past. I want you to see, actually this passage talks about salvation in the past, present, and future. But in the past, verse 11 teaches that Jesus Christ came to bring the grace of God that brings salvation to all men. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. He appeared. Not too long from now, we're going to be celebrating when he appeared. Christmas time. When Jesus came, he appeared. Zacharias, if you remember, uh, used the verb appear to refer to the coming Messiah when he calls, uh, he calls Jesus the sunrise from on high. In Luke 179, it says, he will shine or appear upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. The coming of Jesus was the light of God's grace in a world of darkness to show us how we could get to him. Paul says the appearance of God's grace brought salvation to all men, or it appeared to all men. Now, the the phrase all men does not mean gender here. it's, It's a generic word. It means humans, all people. That God's grace is available for all people. Now, does that mean everyone's going to be saved? No. You know, there's three ideas today, or three basic concepts taught. One of them is universalism that says that all roads lead to God no matter what religion it is, and everyone's going to be saved. That, the Bible does not teach that. The second is inclusivism, which means that Jesus Christ is the way, and yet there are, there are those who, and, and then they use this term anonymous Christians. 
they have a little bit of truth and they do good in other religions and God's going to say, well, you've had enough grace to see the God's creation and, and all of that and you're going to eventually get in. The Bible didn't teach that either. And then there's exclusivism, which means there's only one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ. Well, some people take this passage to say all people are going to be saved or they're going to be included, but that is not what this means. What it means is that God's grace comes to every person who receives it. There's no sinner that's beyond the reach of God's grace. Paul was the persecutor of the church. He called himself the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 15. And if the chief of sinners found mercy, so can you. No sinner, regardless of background or ethnicity, is beyond the reach of God's salvation. No matter how deep a person has sunk in sin, no matter how far they've drifted from God, no matter how dark the night, God's grace can reach all people. Grace, no matter, grace doesn't respond based on our age or our wealth or our race or our gender or our political preference or our social standing. There are some people who think God couldn't save them. God couldn't love them. Their life is too far gone. There's no hope for them. But 2 Peter 3.9 says that's not true. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, folks, let's, let's make this real hard to grasp. God loves the Taliban. I don't like them. Neither do you. But God can save them. You know that? (laughs) I I agree with comedian Brad Stein, who's a Christian. He said, the only reason I'm a Christian is because it's the only religion that would have me. (laughs) Well, if you think about it, God will have us. And he came, and he's right. Jesus is the only Savior that would have folks like you and me. But there's a major hindrance that will keep you from experiencing God's grace, and that is all of our tendency toward self-righteousness. You see, the the Pharisees didn't even see their need for a Savior. We, We sometimes think... I'm, I'm, all, I'm pretty much, I'm about 75% good. I need about 25% of Jesus. Or maybe you're 25% good and you need about 75% of Jesus. You and I need to understand that regardless if we were raised in the church or not, we were all sinners separated from God. Suppose you were standing in a long line at the bank, waiting to make a deposit. 
And suddenly I grab you by the arm and jerk you out of the line and forcibly drag you out of the building. And you're going to be extremely mad. What are you doing? You hurt my arm. You tore my shirt. You made me lose my place in line. You made me look like a fool in front of everyone. And you cannot handle it because you think, why did you do that? But then when I tell you one thing, it changes everything. When I tell you that the bank has been overtaken by terrorists and they're going to kill everyone in it, then all of a sudden you become grateful that you were jerked out of that building. Well, a lot of people that think they don't need any forgiveness, they don't think they need any grace, they're not appreciative of the fact that God has redeemed you and rescued you out of your sin. Before you can appreciate God's grace, you need to know that you're under his wrath and condemnation. You're headed for eternal judgment. To use Charles Spurgeon's phrase, you know the rope is around your neck. You're about to be hung and grace cuts the rope. That's what it is. You and I were all headed to hell. We're on the road to hell. And the grace of God rescued us. It says the grace of God brings salvation. Did you notice it says the grace of God brings salvation? Not the goodness of people. It's not the sincerity of your religion. It's the grace of God that brings salvation. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to work for it. There's not enough money to buy it. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. That means that salvation is not based on my performance. Salvation is based on God's promise. Salvation is not based on my merit. It's based on God's mercy. Salvation is not based on my goodness. It's based on God's grace. In the business world, so loan companies have what they call a grace period. It's a lie. <laughs> if you don't pay your debt on time, maybe they give you a five or ten day grace period. Then they give you a notice and put a, a, an additional fee on that. That's not grace. That's probation. The grace of God is totally unconditional. Have you ever used this phrase or heard someone say this about someone else? Well, they are a real piece of work. And that's normally not used in a kind way. We don't usually say that about people when we're trying to um, compliment them. But did you know all of us are a piece of work? Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So we see God's grace manifested. Now you'll notice God's grace or the grace's transformation. That look at verse 12, teaching us to deny godliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. These are traits, these are characteristics of our life when we have come 
to salvation through God's grace. You'll notice two things. First, there's a life of denial. There are some things that you don't do. There are some things that you deny. One of them is ungodliness. It references a person who does not reverence God and ignores him. Obviously, it speaks of a person who's openly immoral or evil or sinful. But did you know it can be a nice person? An ungodly person can be a nice person. It's somebody who has no place in their life for God. They don't acknowledge God. They don't live for God. And the middle voice in the deny means that we have the responsibility in ourselves to come to the Lord to acknowledge any ungodly thing in our life. Now, you can imagine if somebody was denying ungodliness, they would stand out on the island of Crete when he told Titus this. He said, you're going to be different. Because it's such a worldly, evil, ungodly place. If you deny ungodliness, you're going to stand out. I want to tell you, in this world, there are fewer and fewer and fewer people denying ungodliness. And he also said you deny worldly lust or desires. It refers to the characteristics of the world system. John described it as the lust of the, eye, the, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life in 1 John 2.16. Grace says you don't do this stuff anymore. You say no to it. When you realize what you've been delivered from, and what God has done for you, it helps you say no to some of this stuff. Like, why would I want to go back in the muck and the mire and the, the pits of life when God's forgiven me and God's delivered me? Amen? These people who say, well, I'm under grace. Why do we always look for the loopholes? Everybody's always looking for the loopholes. What, how far can I go? What can I get by with and still be a Christian? That's not what God called us to do. When you realize you've been rescued, you don't want to do that anymore. The temptation is there, yeah. But the Holy Spirit in you says, why would you want to do this anymore? But the grace of God is far sweeter than anything the world can offer. And when grace is dominating our life, we move away from the way we used to live. But it's also a life of direction. Notice those three other things in verse 12. We're to continue to live soberly. Now, when you hear the word sober, you're thinking, well, I don't need to be drunk. That's not the meaning of this word. It's, I mean, obviously, that's one of them. But it means to live in a self-controlled manner, not yielding to every impulse that you have, to be awake, to understand what's going on in your life. To live soberly. To, to, it's, it's really synonymous with the last fruit of the Spirit, which is mentioned in Galatians 5, which is self-control. Look past your nose and see what's going to happen. If I do this, what's going to happen instead of, oh, this looks so good right now. I don't care what's going to happen. Be sober. Be sensible. The more we grow in grace, the more sensible we are. The more rational, the more sane the more sober, it deals with us on the inside. That's, that's grace on the inside. Amen? You got me? 
Well, then the next thing is to live righteously. This is grace on the outside. This is how you deal with other people, a life of integrity, a life of uprightness in your dealings with other people. It means conforming to God's standards that are spelled out in the Word of God. I want to be more like the Lord. I want to do what He tells me to do. I want to do what He instructs us to do. To be more biblical. Growing in grace means we work at conforming our lives to Scripture. And then he also says, and godly. And godly refers to holiness and devotion to God. Beginning on the heart level. You live a Godward life. He's involved in every aspect of your life. We, we have a tendency to compartmentalize. I mean, you think of a wagon wheel and the spoke in the middle of it, and we've got compartments. We've got our business life and our family life and our recreation life and our church life and so forth. But God is at the hub, so he's involved in all of that to be God-centered, to be Godward. Paul, he was, he was concerned about it. In 2 Corinthians, he wrote these words, 2 Corinthians eleven three. 3, but I'm afraid that as the servant deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We live in a day when we are bombarded with so much stuff. We're distracted. We have at our fingertips, in our hands, more than we can handle. I wish phones were just phones. And that would be bad enough. I do. I wish all you could do on a phone was call. But now we're bombarded. People, people are addicted to them. People's minds, they're easily distracted. And you'll notice in verse 12, it says, in the present age. So we live our life on this earth. We're to demonstrate the, these traits in our life now. Yeah, we're saved. We're going home one day. But we're to demonstrate that now. So you see grace's manifestation. God came to us. You see its transformation, how we are changed through Jesus Christ. But you also see grace's anticipation. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope. That word looking for implies eager anticipation. Can you imagine a young bride whose husband is away in the military, who's on his way home, and she's eagerly looking for him to come? That's the picture here. I don't know about you, but I'm more eager now than I've ever been for the Lord to return. I want you to something here. If you have your Bibles, in verse 11, it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. Notice that word appeared, bringing salvation to all men, or at least appearing, uh, showing salvation to all men. And now in verse 13, it says, "The, the glorious appearing of our great God, Savior Jesus Christ. 
Verse 11 is the first appearing. He came to earth as our Savior to save us. In verse 13 is the next appearing. Jesus Christ not coming as a Savior. He's coming as the King of Kings. Now, I personally, I personally believe that verse 13 teaches a pre-tribulation rapture. We're to be those who continually looking for the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a difference in the scripture of appearing and the second coming. The appearing is when Christ is coming in the clouds and taking us, and look at 1 Thessalonians 4, and you'll read it yourself, snatching us away. And later on, at the end of that tribulation period, he's going to touch the earth. He's coming to the earth. The appearing refers to the moment he will appear in the clouds and take us home, rapturous. The second coming refers to the moment he puts his feet on the ground. It also acknowledges that God is in control. He operates on his schedule, not ours. I was told that somebody's already predicted that Jesus was either going to return on September 5th, 6th, or 7th. (laughs) Well, I can guarantee you that's not going to happen. Nobody knows. But even in this delay, we call it the blessed hope. You know, waiting, waiting is not easy in our society. We don't like to wait. Some of you are waiting for me to get through. <laughs> and I'm going to. I mean, think about it. We live in a culture that wants results faster and faster from microwaves to computer processors. We want it now. Now they even combine shampoo and conditioner because it takes too long to rinse twice. (laughs) But grace teaches us to wait expectantly. Some of you are nervous. You're nervous about the Lord's return. Why? Why? Why are you nervous? Because because you're not good enough. But see, you don't get it. God's grace has forgiven us of all of it. And when it comes to get us, he's not going to grab us by the shirt collar and say, Wilson, I got a few things I want to talk to you about. That's not God's grace. I I want this to sink in. And there's something else I don't want you to miss. You look at verse 13. It says, the appearing of our great God and Savior. And who is that? Jesus Christ. I challenge any cult from Islam to Mormonism, from Jehovah's Witness to Christian science, to analyze the Greek text here. And you cannot get around the fact that it clearly says Jesus Christ is God. Second person of the Godhead. There's one more truth about grace I want to share with you. It's grace is salvation. How do you spell salvation? Not literally. Some people spell salvation D-O. Do. 
I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. Some people spell it D-O-N apostrophe T, don't. I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do this. Let me tell you how God spells it. D-O-N-E, done. Salvation is done. Verse 14 spells this out. Notice one of those four things Jesus has done for us. First of all, Jesus paid for us. Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. The word redeem, that got the attention of people in the first century because there were many, many, many slaves in the Roman Empire. Every nation they conquered. A slave, when they heard the word redeemed, would have looked up and said, I want to hear this. Because it means, it was the word latruo or latrao, lutrao, I think is the word, which means buying a slave out of the market to give them their freedom. Jesus Christ paid for you and me. The only way we could be set free was for somebody to die for our sin. The wages of sin is death. Death came because we earned it. Someone died. I I want you to know grace is free, but it's not cheap. Jesus Christ died for our sins. Why did it have to be through Jesus? Well, first of all, no one else was perfect. No one else was sinless. Besides that, no one else volunteered to pay for our sins, and no one's ever died for your sins, and no one's payment has been accepted for our sins except Jesus Christ who was resurrected and paid it for us. Paid. Tetelestai. It is finished. Paid in full is what that means. It's what he cried out on the cross. Not only that, Jesus purifies us. It says in verse 14, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself. He went to that cross, shed his blood, paid the price so that we could be forgiven and covered by his sinless blood. The last atonement, the only atonement. The aorist tense tells us that when are you purified? The moment, the moment. The moment that you receive Christ as your Savior. God washes you clean. Baptism portrays that. That's why it's not optional. It's the profession of your faith. But that doesn't wash away your sin. Don't ever let anybody tell you that. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He purifies us. The moment you confess your sin to God, ask him to forgive you, place your faith and trust in Jesus, you receive the gift of salvation, he purifies you. Not only that, Jesus possesses you. King James Version says, a peculiar people. Maybe one of your translations says the same. Now, the new King James says a special people, peculiar people. First Peter talked about us being in the priesthood of the believer, a peculiar people. By, by the way, do you know what January the 10th is? 
Anybody celebrate January the 10th? I'm serious. I'm not making this up. You can look it up yourself. It is Peculiar People Day. (laughs) Seriously. I went online, and, and, and here's what it said. Peculiar People Day is here to celebrate the leaders of the strange and unusual, those who refuse to succumb to the world's idea of what is normal and sane, whether they dress in their own style or have very clear ideas of what is right and normal. Peculiar People Day is their opportunity to shine. I know some people who need to celebrate that. (laughs) Don't you? (laughs) But did you know the word peculiar in 1600s when the King James Version was translated did not mean strange. It was a word peculium Latin word that meant private property. And not only that, it was not just private property, it was a treasured possession. When grace comes to you, you're paid for, you're purified, and you are God's treasured possession. He owns you. He loves you. He wants you. You belong to him. You are special and owned by God. You're his favorite. We tell our kids that, every one of them. You know you're our favorite. You really are his favorite. He owns owns you. And finally, we see that Jesus prompts us. It says he makes us zealous for good works. Paul used that word zealous to describe his fanatical zeal for Judaism prior to his conversion. In Galatians 1.14, he said, I was zealous for legalism and Judaism. Are you zealous? Are you a fanatic about good works? about doing what God wants you to do. And and I'm afraid that most Christians dabble at good deeds when it's convenient. But if we've been bought out of the slave market of sin by the blood of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we should be fanatics about good deeds. When a person has experienced the grace of God, two things are true about him. He cannot live like he used to, and he wants to live like he ought to. I heard someone say, if your religion has not changed your life, you'd better change your religion. But when grace comes into your life, he gives you for love of God, gives you a hatred for sin. I close with three illustrations. If you're in the business world or you did some kind of business degree, you have heard of a man named Peter Drucker. He had an IQ that was off the chart. He was the father of American management. In fact, he wrote the first book on management many, many years ago. He died back in 2005 in his 90s. His books are studied even to this day in every business school in America and around the world. One of the things you may not know about Peter Drucker is that he was a Christian. 
And a pastor who was a very close friend of Peter Drucker came to his home one day to talk with him, and he said, how is it that you finally became a Christian? How did you finally step across the line and put your trust in Jesus Christ and accept him as your Lord? And Peter Drucker thought about it for a second, and he said, when I finally understood grace, I realized I was never going to get a better deal than that. His name was John. His mom died when he was six years old. His dad was a sailor. At the age of 11, he became a sailor. He got into all kinds of wickedness. In fact, he became so mean that his own father disowned him. He got into the slave trade. Some people began to witness to John. They gave him a book by a man named Thomas Akempis called The Imitation of Christ. He began to read the book, and God began to work on his heart. But while on the ship with a bunch of slaves, John was on the deck when a violent storm came up, and before he knew it, a gigantic wave came over the ship and swept him into the ocean. The next thing John knew, he was being tossed about in that deep, rough sea, knowing that he was going to die. And in a moment, his entire life flashed before him. Then an incredible thing happened. Another wave came and literally got under John, lifted him up, and hurled him back on the deck of that ship. That's all he needed. And on the deck of that ship... He asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into his heart to save him. But the story wasn't over. At the age of 39, he was called into the ministry. He not only became a great preacher, but he wrote what is probably the all-time favorite hymn of the modern-day church. John Newton wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's what grace can do. A little boy came to the Washington Monument. He noticed a guard standing by it. Little boy looked up at the guard and he said, I want to buy the Washington Monument. The guard stooped down and says, How much do you have? Boy reached in his pocket, pulled out a quarter, and the guard said, that's not enough. Boy replied, I thought you would say that. So he pulled out nine more pennies, 34 cents. Guard looked at him and said, son, you need to understand three things. First of all, 34 cents is not enough. In fact, 34 million is not enough to buy the Washington Monument. Second, the Washington Monument is not for sale. And third, if you are an American citizen, the Washington Monument already belongs to you. We need to understand three things about God's forgiveness. You cannot earn it. It's not for sale. And if you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, you already have it. If you don't know Jesus, 
why wouldn't you want the grace of God? You'll never get a better deal than that. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's hard for us to fathom your grace. We've been taught all our lives to earn it, to merit it, to accomplish it. And yet you've already done it. Because of that, a lot of Christians live in bondage knowing that that we're still not perfect and we still struggle with sin. We still are tempted. We still fail. And yet you still love us. You don't love us any less than you did when you sent grace in the first place. So I pray that today Christians would bask in the grace of God and enjoy living in you. And Lord, because you love us so much, we want to do what you want us to do. I pray for those who've never received Jesus Christ. They've been religious, a lot of religious people, but they don't know you. I pray for these that are struggling in their religion, trying to earn their way to heaven. That's all that's going on around our world and all this turmoil. There's a group of people thinking they can please their God, which is not the true God. But I pray today that somebody who's caught up in some kind of religion that says you got to do, 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 do this, I pray, Lord, that you will show them that you have done it. They turn from their sin and come to you, receive you as their Savior. (laughs) And then, Lord, I, I know that you'll want to put them in a church somewhere. If this is the place you want them to be, you bring them here. And the first thing they're going to want to do is to be baptized, to show what you've done. You've purified them. You've given them a new life. So, Lord, I pray that today people would respond to you. While your heads are bowed, there are pastors here at the front to to pray with you, to receive you as you come. We're not going to make you stand up here in front of anybody. People are going to be praying with their heads bowed and their eyes closed. Would you quietly stand to your feet? Would you keep your heads bowed? And would you just pray that God would speak to hearts? Maybe speaking to your heart. Maybe you want somebody to pray with you. You can come right Amazing now. grace, how sweet the sound. If you're watching us online, you can hit the connect button or you can, you can text us. Text the word living hope, all one phrase. Four seven four seven four seven. Somebody will respond to you. Is there anyone today? If nothing else in your heart, you ought to say, God, thank you. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555 888 
You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.